Welcome to Term Talk, an FJC video podcast. This podcast is one of several short videos acquainting federal judges with this term Supreme Court holdings. For the next few minutes, we'll talk about two criminal law cases decided during the 2019-2020 Supreme Court term. The first case, McGirt versus Oklahoma, substantially impacts Native American territorial sovereignty and involves 40% of Oklahoma land. The second, Kansas versus Glover, creates a standard for reasonable suspicion, at least in traffic stops, that Justice Thomas describes as based on a common sense judgment of a reasonably prudent person. With me is Evan Lee of UC Hastings Law. I'm Beth Wiggins, Director of the Research Division at the Federal Judicial Center. Evan, as always, it's great to be with you today, even if, again, it's virtually. Thank you for having me. Let's get started with McGirt versus Oklahoma. In McGirt versus Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma sentenced Jim C. McGirt, a member of the Seminole tribe, to 500 years for serious sexual offenses that occurred on land that was, at at least one time, Indian land. McGirt challenged the conviction, arguing that under the Major Crimes Act, certain crimes committed by Indians in Indian country fell under the jurisdiction of the federal government rather than the state of Oklahoma. His argument hinges on whether the land where the crimes occurred are part of a reservation or whether the reservation has been disestablished by Congress and so assumed by the state of Oklahoma. Evan, this case is much more than about one individual's conviction. What's going on? Well, you just have to look at the first sentence of the opinion. Justice Gorsuch wrote for a five to four majority. And the first sentence is, on the far end of the trail of tears was a promise. That's almost poetry. And it tells you that he thinks this case is not just about a single criminal conviction. Uh, It's about the way that Congress has dealt with Indian tribes in the Western United States over centuries. Uh, And if this case has any precedential effect going forward, which is problematical because uh, of the passing of Justice Ginsburg, um, it is that Congress may only disestablish Indian nations by clear statement uh, that the court will not infer disestablishment from the totality of the circumstances. In this case, because Congress never did make a clear statement abrogating its promises to the Creek Nation, Congress is going to be held to them. So the immediate implications of this case are the contraction of Oklahoma state court jurisdiction over crimes that are alleged to have been committed by Indians on Indian lands, and then the corresponding expansion of federal court jurisdiction over those crimes. We're already experiencing that. But again, depending on how Justice Ginsburg's replacement sees things, there is a chance that someday we're going to look back on this case and say, you know, that was the beginning of a big change in the way that the Supreme Court regarded the legal relations between Indian tribes and the states between Indian tribes and Congress. You know, the possible long-term implications are really interesting, and I want to talk more about them later. But let's go back to the beginning of the case for a moment. So under the Major Crimes Act, certain crimes committed by Native Americans on reservations fall within the exclusive jurisdiction of the federal courts. So the question ends up being, did the crimes by McGirt occur in Indian country? And that in turn depends on whether the tribe has any lands left or whether Congress disestablished the reservation. 
The court had to look at a really long history of congressional a- action to answer that question. And they started with treaties in 1832 and 1833. They continued through legislation during the allotment era and onward from that. Can you expound upon some of that? Uh, the majority concedes that in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, Congress did come quite close to disestablishing, uh, extinguishing the Creek Nation. But, says the majority, Congress never actually made a clear statement that it was doing so. Then things changed. In the 1920s, uh, nationwide congressional policy pivoted away from sort of assimilationist theory and toward toleration and respect for traditional aspects um, of Indian culture. And so the majority points out that uh, pursuant to this new uh, perspective, the Creek Nation ratified a new constitution, established uh, three branches of government, including a judiciary, created a police force, built three hospitals, uh, currently manages a budget of $350 million and has 2000 employees. Well, you know, this was a 5-4 decision, as you mentioned, and looking at the same laws and history, the dissent reached a different conclusion. Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the dissent, looked at the issue holistically. He focused on the progression of congressional acts and the understanding of and reliance on those acts. And so, Evan, it seems the decision seems to turn on a disagreement about the proper rules of interpretation in the federal Indian law area. What do you think? It, it, yeah, it does. It does turn on that. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts disagreed with the majority, uh, stating that uh, a strict mode of statutory construction requiring Congress to make a clear statement uh, ever existed in this area of law. Chief Justice Roberts says that's that is not how we've done it over the years. And he believes that the proper mode of interpretation is to discern Congress's intent based on, as you said, more of a holistic reading of the entire series of statutes over time, and also taking into account the context of contemporaneous events that were going on when those statutes were passed. And so Chief Justice Roberts points out that Congress at one time eliminated the reservation's judicial system eliminated its budget, eliminated its administrative structure. Um, He points out that the property that made up the reservation was allotted to individuals and much of it was sold to non-Indians. He points out that crimes within that territory have been tried in state court for many years now. And this is just upsetting the apple cart. So let's return and talk about the impacts of the decision a little bit more. Um, This decision could really impact other states and other tribal lands, right? It could. Um, Tribal lands and a couple of other Western states may now come under federal jurisdiction for crimes committed under the Major Crimes Act, maybe Wyoming, maybe Utah. It will not impact criminal jurisdiction in those states that are covered by something called Public Law 280, which um, it, it creates a cutout from um, um, the MCA. And those states are California, Minnesota, uh, Nebraska, Oregon, uh, Wisconsin, and Alaska. Well, another thing, um, the dissent warns the decision could overturn thousands of Oklahoma state convictions, and all of these cases might end up in federal court. 
And I guess the majority counters in part by saying that only a few of the defendants will be willing to do this, to risk losing their time served, to relitigate their cases in federal court. Um, maybe we it's hard to know. Yeah, I mean, it's an empirical question. Uh, we're in the process of finding out whether uh, what the correct answer is. I think the far more uh, the the more far reaching question is if Justice Ginsburg's replacement accepts McGirt as a binding precedent for determining whether Congress has effectively disestablished Indian nations, what uh, you know, what effect might there be beyond criminal law? So federal district judges could potentially see effects in litigation over reservation boundaries. Um, they could see effects in litigation under the Indian Child Welfare Act, which has a fairly similar definition of Indian country or Indian lands. Same thing with the Clean Water Act. Same thing with the Clean Air Act. The one area that I would guess will not be immediately affected would be gaming, because the uh, Indian Gaming Regulatory Act uses a different uh, definition of Indian country or Indian lands. The next few years will tell us um, what the effect will be, and I look forward to talking with you about that more. Um, but for now, let's move on to Kansas versus Glover, a case involving what constitutes reasonable suspicion under the Fourth Amendment. In this case, Charles Glover was driving his own vehicle with a revoked license. He was stopped by a police officer and later convicted for driving with a revoked license. Glover appealed the decision asserting the stop was illegal. The police officer said that he formed a reasonable suspicion supporting this stop because after searching a database, he found that the vehicle's owner was Glover um, and he had a revoked license. The Kansas Supreme Court reversed Glover's conviction. It found that reasonable suspicion could not be drawn solely from knowing that the owner of the vehicle had a revoked license. The U.S. Supreme Court reversed again, upholding his conviction. So on the surface, this case seems to present a clear issue decided by an 8-1 decision, and there shouldn't be much controversy or many unsettled issue. But I think you think differently. Uh, well, I, I think the law is clear. Uh, the officer only has to have reasonable suspicion and not probable cause. But if you change the facts of this case even just a little bit, maybe it comes out differently. And I think that's why the court calls it a narrow decision. So, for example, um, after the officer saw that the truck was registered to somebody named Charles Glover, a, a middle-aged man, if he happens to see that the driver looks like a woman, or if he happens to see that the driver looks like a teenager, the case quite possibly comes out differently. And another thing that makes this decision narrow is the posture of the case, which was so oddball. Um, it was decided entirely based on stipulations of fact. Uh, the officer never took the stand. There was never any opportunity for cross-examination. That's not going to be the case very often. Well, so Evan, why did the Kansas Supreme Court reverse on Fourth Amendment grounds? Um, uh, well, interestingly, the justice who wrote uh, for the Kansas Supreme Court said, I have teenagers who drive cars that are registered in my name, and I know that to be a fairly common uh, practice, so you can't always assume that the registered owner is the driver. But Justice Thomas, writing for the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, didn't see it that way. 
And he said, in the absence of any contrary information, it is common sense to assume that the registered owner is the driver on the present occasion. Justice Thomas describes reasonable suspicion as depending on the factual and practical considerations and what he calls common sense judgments of a reasonable and prudent person. Justice Thomas specifically rejects the notion uh, that the standard is a reasonable police officer with training and experience in law enforcement. He says the standard is a reasonable person using common sense gathered from ordinary life experience. But at the same time, he also stressed that, you know, it has to be based on an individualized suspicion that a particular citizen was engaged in a particular crime, um, that this decision does not grant you know, unlimited discretion uh, to police officers. One of the contested points in this case was how likely it is that people with revoked licenses, as opposed to suspended licenses, will continue to drive. Evan, what did the court say about that? Was there anything significant in Kansas law concerning revoked licenses? Justice Thomas pointed out that in Kansas, you can only have your license revoked for violations that demonstrate a disregard of the law or a categorical unfitness to drive. So under those, uh, in that context, it is reasonable to think that a lot of people with revoked licenses are gonna uh, continue to drive. Now, Justice Kagan and the late Justice Ginsburg uh, concurred. They agreed with that point, but they further pointed out that the standards for license revocation uh, might not be the same in other states. And an important point made by Justice Sotomayor in dissent um, is that if so little evidence need exist or be presented in order to support a stop that's based on reasonable suspicion, how does a defendant ever challenge such a stop? Yeah, so we'll probably see litigation trying to challenge and further the notion of reasonable suspicion described by the majority. Well, Evan, thank you again for being here. Um, I've really enjoyed our conversation and I look forward to seeing you again. Yeah, me too. 